If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it and do turn with me to the book of 2 John, where we'll return to this little letter that we've been studying over the past few weeks. You know, for as long as money has been used by economies as a medium of exchange, there have always been counterfeits. Over the last two or three centuries, nations have even used counterfeiting as a means of warfare against rival nations. And the idea is to overflow the enemy's economy with fake banknotes so that the real value of money plummets. Now, England did this back in the 18th century during the American Revolution uh, in an attempt to try to reduce the value of the continental dollar. And the counterfeiters that were employed secretly by the British were known as shovers due to their ability to be able to shove fake currency into circulation. Now, there were two of these secret agents uh, in particular. Their names were David Farnsworth and John Blair. And this dastardly duo secretly made their way through the 13 colonies dispersing wads of imitation uh, continental currency so that when they were eventually caught, they were discovered to have in their possession more than $10,000 worth of continental dollars. Now, if you could imagine the, the, the amount of that in those days, it's just an astronomical amount. And so General George Washington ordered them to be hanged. Now, the fact of the matter is that Satan is the ultimate shover when it comes to foisting his counterfeits off on the unsuspecting. The devil offers a counterfeit salvation through the spread of a counterfeit gospel which is proclaimed by his counterfeit prophets. And this is something that you and I need to be on guard against as we hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And again, that emphasis by John is so important here in 2 John where he wants his readers to hold fast both to the truth of the gospel as it's been revealed from God and he wants us to hold fast to the love that we have for one another within the context of the family of faith. Now we get to the body of his message here really beginning in verse number seven. He's warning his readers against the potential threat that they were facing and it was the threat of a counterfeit version of Christianity that was not in keeping with the truth. Remember, he's already encouraged them to walk in the truth, and he has said that it's brought him great joy to hear that many of, of the elect lady's children are walking in the truth. And so I, I hold to the view that he's writing here sort of cryptically to a, a local church made up of believers, so that when he's referring to the elect lady, he's speaking of the church uh, in terms of a, of a sort of a metaphor they were walking in the truth. They were walking in love for one another. But he wants them to be on guard against a potential threat. Now look at what he says there in verse number 7 about this threat. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but that we may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now listen to this. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so he doesn't want them to be taken advantage of. He doesn't want uh, their kindness and their Christian compassion to be exploited by these false teachers. And so he says you need discernment. And so I want to speak from this subject this morning, confronting a counterfeit Christianity. And that's what John is doing in these verses here. I've heard it said that behind every movement there's an idea And behind every idea, there is a champion. And you know that ideas are powerful. And ideas have the potential to give great shape to our lives, determining what we believe and how we live. A person's ideas often determine their understanding of the meaning of life and the purpose of their life. And these ideas often serve as a guide for how they live their lives. Now we know that there are good ideas which are grounded in the truth while at the same time there are also bad ideas which may contain a kernel of truth but ultimately are built upon a lie. And these are the most dangerous ideas. And the battle of ideas never lets up, which is why you and I need a biblical worldview that is able to accurately identify these ideas that come at us now literally from every direction. We're constantly bombarded with ideas from our culture, uh, constantly bombarded with ideas from our peer groups and our friends and our family. Often we're bombarded with ideas that come through a variety of mediums, uh, such as billboards or social media. Uh, Song lyrics often contain ideas telling us what to believe and how to live, what's important. Hollywood icons, They have their own ideas that they want us to embrace. And so the world around us literally is filled with those who pose as truth tellers who influence us in the area of belief. This is why Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and says that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He says, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we're discerning. We're able to confront these false ideas with the truth. We're able to spot the counterfeit. We know the real thing so that we can spot the counterfeit when we see it. He says something similar in Colossians 2 verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, you and I could take a tour of church buildings this morning where the truth of the gospel once rang out with a sense of clarity and conviction, uh, places where crowds of men and women and children once gathered to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. And yet today in those buildings, if there's any worship being offered at all, it's offered in unbelief. And one reason is because ideas were introduced, their guard was let down, the gospel was lost, and folks, when you lose the gospel, you no longer have the church. 
And so someone says, well, how did that happen? Did it all happen at once? Did everybody decide one day to abandon the gospel? Did they vote to just shut the church down? No. It happens by degree. It happens incrementally. It happens when, when men and women cease to be discerning when it comes to the issues of Christian belief. And they begin to entertain ideas which are not true, which then lead them to believe that certain things don't matter. That becomes the point of decline and then eventual death. And not only has this been the way that some churches have gone, but even entire denominations are going that route. So that when you abandon the truth of the gospel, you no longer have the church. And then you read about things in the news, you know, just like this last weekend where there was a church in Texas that hosted a, what was called a, a pride parade uh, or a pride prom where it was celebrating drag queens. And one would wonder, how is that even possible? How does that happen? How does a church get to that point where a church would talk? Folks, let me tell you, that's not the church. Because where you lose the gospel, you no longer have the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John is concerned by this spiritual threat that his readers were facing. And that threat has to do with ideas that were being centered around the person of Jesus, but they were not true ideas. And these ideas were being celebrated as progress, but what was being hailed as progress was actually lethal to the faith. And so that's why John says what he does there in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. He's not saying there that we're not to make progress in the Christian life. You know, he's not talking about spiritual growth. We, we know that we're to grow in our understanding, in our knowledge, and in our obedience to Jesus. No, John's concern here is movement away from the truth. James Montgomery Boy says it this way, there's a type of progress that is not progress at all. It's movement that's actually a movement away from the basic truths of the faith and therefore detrimental. This is the thing that John is warning his readers against. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard by this religious movement that, that sort of presents itself as a great step forward, but it really ensnares the men and women who most want to go on ahead or advance spiritually. And so what John is saying here, while we advance in the gospel, we must never advance from the gospel. And there is a world of difference in those two prepositional phrases. You and I ought to advance in the gospel and make spiritual progress in the gospel. But let me tell you, we never graduate from the gospel. We never progress forward from the gospel. Because to do that is, is, is really to abandon the truth as it's been revealed and delivered once for all to the saints. So in these verses, John is confronting this counterfeit Christianity that's being passed off as the real thing. And he issues this very strong warning to his readers in which he says, you need to watch out for these unbiblical ideas that masquerade in Christian clothing. And so we see here that he has something to say about this deception that they needed to avoid. There's a discernment that they needed to practice, a distinction that's being made, as well as a directive that is to be followed. So notice, first of all, uh, the deception to be avoided. That's what he says in verse 7 when he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not 
confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's saying discernment is necessary because deception is abundant. So I want you to just notice what he says there, in particular there in verse number seven. Notice what he has to say about the reality of this spiritual deception. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. And the word that he uses there, translated deceivers uh, in, in the ESV, which I use, it's a Greek word, planos. And it's interesting, this was the same word that we get the word planets from. You know, the word means wandering. Planets were called that. That word was attached to, because they appeared to be wandering through the sky. They weren't stationary in the night sky, but they appeared to be wandering stars. This is the same word that John is using here to describe these itinerant traveling teachers who were sort of going from town to town and from house to house or from church to church posing as spiritual teachers, but they were trying to foist off a counterfeit on the unsuspecting. And so these false teachers claim to be speaking with authority. They claim to be truth tellers. They use the name of Jesus. They even signed his name to their ideas. But John says, make no mistake about it, what they are selling is not the truth. In fact, we read in the gospel accounts where Jesus on many occasions warned his disciples of the rise of false Christs, false prophets who would attempt to deceive people in this very way. And he says it's something you really need to be on guard against as my followers. Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So he says that these false prophets, they're disguised. He doesn't say, beware of false prophets who come with fangs and horns protruding. No, they come dressed like sheep. That is, they appear harmless. They don't appear to be a threat. But you see, their appearance is very deceptive. There's, there's an attractive quality to them that even appeals to the flesh. And the major reason that they're so influential is that they often speak to the things that we as human beings, by our very nature, desire to hear the most. There are certain things that you and I want, certain desires that all of us have as, as created beings. We've been made uniquely in the image of God. You say, well, what is it that we want? Well, I'll tell you what you want. First of all, because of the fall, Deep down, all of us want to be boss. Now, don't sit there and look so holy and sanctimonious. You know you want to be boss oftentimes in your own life. I do, you do, we all face that temptation where we want to be in charge. We want to be the ones calling the shots in our lives. And so when some false teacher comes along and sort of appeals to that their idea that they offer sort of appeals to that desire that's resident within you to sort of want to be your own Lord. If you're not discerning, you can buy into that philosophy and then take that idea and seek to build your life upon it because it puts you at the center of the universe. Uh, something else that we all want, it's love and acceptance. All of us want to be loved. All of us want to be accepted there's this emptiness at the core of our being, deep down in our soul. It's an echo of Eden. We're alienated from God in our fallen state. The only thing that can fill that void is God himself. 
And that longing for love and acceptance, when properly understood, when seen in the light of Christ, God is the one who then fills that void, that ache deep down in your soul. But you see, when there's some other idea that comes along that's spread by some false prophet that appeals to that desire within you but offers you some substitute, that offers you something else that you can try to build your life upon so as to find love and acceptance, well, This is the stuff of false religion. And so Jesus says that this kind of thing is going to really be widespread in the last days. Uh, He says in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, uh, see to it that no one leads you astray. That word see there, it, it, it translates a word blepo, which means to be consciously aware, be discerning. Be keenly aware of the fact that there are those who would seek to lead you astray. He says, many are going to come in my name saying that I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. He says the same thing in Mark chapter 13. Says the same thing in Luke chapter 21 verse 8. See that you're not led astray. Many will come in my name saying I am he. He say, okay, well, pastor, I don't know anyone personally who, who claims to be Jesus. Let me phrase it to you this way. There are plenty of people in culture today who offer salvation and claim to offer all of the answers to humanity's problems. I mean, the woods are full of those who pose as political saviors, saviors that speak to social issues, who offer a false salvation, who preach a false gospel. Listen, there would not be so many warnings from Jesus if false prophets were not a very real danger. (laughs) Why does he deal with this so much? Well, it's because it's such a widespread thing. And if that's true in the first century, that's only been exacerbated now in the 21st century. And Jesus' words to his disciples were fulfilled before the close of the first century. If you just turn back a couple of pages, go to 1 John chapter 4. John has already dealt with this issue in his first epistle. He says there in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's saying the same thing there that he says in 2 John verse 7. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They're disguised. They're deadly. They're dangerous. They've gone out into the world. The language might suggest that perhaps they've gone out from the church. We know that was the issue in 1 John, where he says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So evidently, there were those that sort of made a superficial attachment, maybe uh, to the church, maybe even professed a, a particular faith in Jesus, But before too long, it became evident that they were not genuinely converted to Christ because they depart from the faith and they begin introducing ideas and and, and preaching truths that were not true of Christ. But I think what John is really getting at here, perhaps more than anything else, is a reference to the fact that these deceivers have gone out into the world sort of in this sense of an anti-great commission. Now, that shouldn't surprise you that Satan would send his missionaries and emissaries out into the world sort of on an anti-commission because if he has an anti-Christ, 
And if there are anti-gospels preached by these antichrists, it should be no surprise to us that he sends these antichrists out on an anti-commission. Because one of the things that the devil tries to do is he tries to mimic God in everything that God does. Because it was through pride and wanting to be like God that he became the evil one that he is. Martin Luther said that he's the great ape of God. He mimics God. And so he sends these false prophets out into the world with a false gospel on sort of this false great commission because he's trying to mimic God in everything that God does. And so John says you all need to be aware of this that, that, that Christ and his great commission where his followers are sent into the world with the news of the truth, don't be surprised that Satan tries to mimic that when he sends his emissaries out into the world who spread their lies. I think it was Mark Twain who said that a lie will travel halfway around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots. <laughs> Ever wondered why it is that bad news seems to travel faster than good news? I wish that we gossip the good news as much as we gossip stuff that may or may not be true or our own version of it. Why is it that gossip is such an issue? Well, it's because it just appeals to our flesh and that fallen sense of our humanity. But we live in a fallen world that's under the, the influence of the evil one. And so he'll see to it that that bad news and those lies will travel much faster and even farther oftentimes than the truth. He'll put up a lot of roadblocks to try to block the truth from from being declared. But I'm so glad that the scripture says greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. And that the lies of the evil one are no match for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victorious gospel. So there's the reality of this spiritual deception and then notice John follows that up by mentioning the nature of this spiritual deception. He says many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now here's the nature of it those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So the ideas that were being spread abroad by these teachers were ideas that were contrary to the truth and they centered around a false idea about Jesus himself. Now those ideas were being expressed in a particular philosophy that was really gaining traction in the first century world but it heavily borrowed from Greek philosophy which was popular at the time and it was using Christian terminology. It was sort of this syncretistic religion that sort of tried to borrow from both worlds. And so Greek philosophy of the day made this distinction between the body and the soul and it held that the body, well this is bad, the soul is good. And so when they look at the claims of the apostles that Jesus Christ that he is God in human flesh, these false teachers said, no, no, that doesn't jive with our philosophy because the body is bad. And why would a good God ever take on flesh which is bad by their definition? And so they reject the truth of Christ's humanity. Now this false teaching became known as Gnosticism. And that comes from a word that means knowledge. And these false teachers were traveling around to these churches and they were saying you've heard what the apostles have been preaching well what you really need you need to be initiated into this secret knowledge that we have to offer we we have a far superior knowledge than just that simple knowledge that the apostles have been preaching we want you to know that Jesus was not really human it's interesting that a lot of the heresy that was 
you know, so rampant in the first century church was often centered around the humanity of Jesus and not as much as his deity. Now to be sure, there were those that denied his deity. There are those in our own time that deny his deity. But the fact of the matter is, the scripture teaches that Jesus is both God and man. God with us, Emmanuel, God who takes on human flesh. That's why John is so clear in his gospel in the first chapter uh, when he says that, that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You say, why is that important? Because your salvation is dependent upon the word being made man. We needed a perfect man to get right what Adam got wrong, thereby plunging the entire race into sin and rebellion against God. <laughs> and only Jesus qualifies. Because he is perfect God, he is perfect man. He is all of God, he is all of man. So here you have deity and humanity wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the Jesus that John preaches. This is the Jesus that the Apostle Paul preaches. This is the Jesus of the apostolic faith which has been delivered to the saints. And any departure from that, anything that would diminish or add to that, John is very clear when he says this is anti-Christian, anti-Christ ideas. And you say, okay, well, that was then, this is now. But you see, understanding that helps us better combat this battle of ideas which is raging in our own time. Because there's a counterfeit version of Christianity that wants to make a Jesus in its own image in our own time. That wants to acknowledge that he was a great teacher. That maybe even appeals to him as a model for social revolution. Or he's an ever-present affirmation of whatever lifestyle choice I may embrace. But what it denies is his death for our sins and his absolute lordship over every area of our life. And when you lose the gospel, almost anything goes in the name of love and tolerance. You know, very few people will object to the fact when you say Jesus is my savior. But when you say Jesus Christ is the one and only savior, well, that's controversial. And sometimes you hear people say, well, my God would never do this, or my Jesus would never do that. And you know, they almost have this version of God that's kind of like a Build-A-Bear. Build-A-Bear Christianity. You ever been to Build-A-Bear? Did you take your kids to Build-A-Bear if you're going to an outlet or something? You go in, you get ripped off real good. You come out of there with a $50 version of some teddy bear Frankenstein's monster where they go in and they put this particular color of pants on it, and they put this kind of glasses on it, and this little backpack on it, and then... Good night, you can't eat lunch or supper that day because you've pretty much emptied your bank account at Build-A-Bear. I think a lot of people want a Build-A-Bear version of God. There are certain parts that I like, that I read about in, in Scripture. I love the fact that he's a God of love. But now I don't want to talk about the fact that he meets sin and the fierceness of his wrath. I love the part that talks about him being a God who wants us to be in heaven with him. But now I don't like the, the parts where Jesus talked about hell so much. And so I reject those versions in favor of my own Build-A-Bear version. And John says, you can't have it that way. When God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, uh, he says, here's my name. I am that I am. 
And that does not mean I am whoever you want me to be. He's saying I am whom I have revealed myself to be. And so you have this reality of spiritual deception, the nature of this deception, and then notice what John has to say about the origin of this spiritual deception. He doesn't mince words there in verse seven when he gets to the issue of the origin of these patently false ideas about Jesus. He says that those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist which is already at work in our world. Lies are abundant, in particular lies about truth, lies about who Jesus is. The reason is we live in a fallen world and the evil one wants to keep people in the dark as to the truth of who Jesus is. And so he works hard to counterfeit the truth. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three. How did the evil one trip our first parents up? He did so by introducing a lie, a lie. That's why Jesus said that the devil is a liar. He's the father of all lies, and all lies find their origin in him. And this thing is going to be ramped up the closer that we get to the second coming of Jesus. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter four, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 2 Timothy chapter four, he says the time is coming when people won't endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. And so you can rest assured that Satan tries his dead level hardest to keep people from coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is. He's fine if you acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher. He's not threatened by that. He's fine with you approaching Jesus as as if he were some kind of spiritual good luck charm. He's fine with that. But the evil one will work overtime to keep you blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is both God and man, God and human flesh, the only way to know God, the one and only mediator between God and man, and the one and only hope for the world in whom our salvation is found. He wants to keep you blind to that truth. So this is the deception then that John's readers needed to avoid. Now notice the second thing, and I'll just leave this with you and we'll close. There's a discernment that needs to be carefully practiced. That's why he says in verse eight, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. He's not talking about them losing salvation. He's saying you need to be carefully on guard. You need to be diligent. That word watch there is the same word Jesus uses when he says so many times, see to it that no one lead you astray, blepo. Be absolutely careful. Be, be consciously discerning when it comes to these ideas that you embrace and what you seek to build your life upon. Watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we've worked so diligently for. As a gospel worker, who, who sought to see that the church was being built up in the faith and built up in the truth. He's saying, don't let all of that be destroyed by this 
introduction of these ideas which are, are rooted in a lie. So John's warning here, this is not just in the area of theory. I'm telling you, this is very practical. And it's not given in the event of a remote possibility that false ideas may come up that you may be introduced to. No, the rationale for his, his, his instruction here is what he said in verse seven. Many deceivers have already gone out into the world. Don't be caught off guard by these ideas. Which is why it's so important that we as a church put forward a ministry plan as a congregation that prioritizes in discipleship and worldview formation and seeing to it that even the youngest among us from the elementary hallways to their graduation from high school, I don't know about you, but I wanna see to it that our children are sent into the world armed rather than unarmed when it comes to being able to combat these ideas which are warring against their soul. I want them to be able to recognize and spot the counterfeit and see it uh, in the light of the real thing. And the beauty of it is you don't necessarily spot the counterfeit by spending so much time talking about the counterfeit. No, what you do is you build them up in the real thing to such a point they can easily spot the counterfeit when it makes its way their way. So Satan comes along and he's a constant liar in, in, in your life. Constantly introducing lies, whispering lies. He lies to men about God. He lies to God about men. He tries to sell his poisonous lies by masquerading them as liberating truths. It's what Jared Wilson calls the gospel according to Satan. He lies to us about our need for a savior. He lies to us about the identity of that savior. He lies then about who can or can't be saved by that savior. He'll lie to you and make you think that you're beyond salvation. God can't save you because of who you are and what you've done. That's a lie from the evil one. Or he'll lie to you and say, you're good enough. You don't really need salvation. That's a lie also from the evil one. So be on guard against this counterfeit Christianity. I remember reading somewhere about how in 1955, Billy Graham went to Cambridge University over in England and he was there to preach a series of sermons at that prestigious university. And so before his arrival, the media had a field day in all of the British papers expressing their disdain about his, his visit. And they asked, what in the world is this backwoods American fundamentalist doing coming to talk to our nation's finest and brightest? <laughs> and Billy Graham, he was intimidated by all of that advanced criticism. He was a young man at the time. He was 36 or 37, something like that. And he was nervous when it came to preparing his messages for the Cambridge crowd, which was made up largely of professors and esteemed doctors and all of these other intellectual elites. And so he carefully mined books and papers and trying to find appropriate cultural illustrations and philosophical quotes. He was so afraid of looking like a dummy before the skeptical audience. And so the first four nights he was there, by his own testimony, he bombed. If you can think of Billy Graham actually preaching a bad sermon. I mean, I can't think of it, but he said he did. 
The halls were packed, but there was no response. His preaching didn't elicit any significant response. And so on the last night that he was there, Billy Graham decided to ditch all of the highbrow quotes, and he decided he was just going to preach on the blood of Jesus Christ. And he decided that instead of trying to boast in his own intellectual prowess, he was just going to forget everything else and simply boast in the cross of Jesus. There was an Anglican clergyman named Dick Lucas who later tells about this, what happened. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed place sitting on the floor with the professor of divinity sitting on one side, the chaplain of the college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were good men in many ways, but they were totally against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, Billy Graham got up and he started at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was flowing all through the university church everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Both of my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, about 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. (laughs) That's amazing. And later, Lucas met a young Cambridge grad at the Birmingham Cathedral, and over tea, he asked this young man, he said, where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, the young man said, at Cambridge in 1955. When? He said, when Billy Graham came. What night? He said, the last night. How did it all happen? He said, all I remember as I walked out of the college church was that for the first time in my life, thinking, Christ really died for me. Now listen, Satan is fine when it comes to you believing that Christ died. He can build an entire counterfeit system off that. But where the rubber meets the road is when you personalize the gospel and you come to believe that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, perfect sacrifice, Son of God, bled and died for me. Me, personally. And that's life-changing. That's soul-saving. That's liberating. And that's the power of truth, isn't it? I don't know about you, but listen. I want to proclaim a message to young men and young women and people of all ages that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let's stand for prayer this morning. John says you need to be on the alert because many deceivers have gone out into the world. How have you heeded that warning that's given here? Are you able to discern truth from error? Ephesians 5 verse 6 says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. And that's really all that the enemy has to offer. It's just empty words and platitudes so as to distract you from the truth truth of the gospel that Jesus died for me and that in him 
In Christ alone, my hope is found. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus, what's keeping you from coming to him in faith, trust, complete surrender? Just as you are, come to him. Acknowledge your sin, confess it, and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me and that you rose again from the dead. And you're my living Lord in whom I place my faith and my trust. We're going to sing in just a moment, and if that's you and you'd like to come and pray with me or one of our other pastors, I want to invite you to come and receive Christ as your Savior. But for the church now, listen. Let's be diligent and be on, on, on the watch out and on guard against these ideas that are just so prevalent in the world today. Don't buy into everything that you see and hear with face value, but look at everything and process your life in the world through the grid of truth, God's word. Lord, in, the, in Jesus' name, take these truths. May they wash over our lives, transform our thinking, Give us confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.